Welcome to Skillful Means Podcast. I'm Jennifer O'Sullivan. And I'm Annie Moyer. If you're listening to this, you're probably into yoga and you've probably heard the classic translation of the word to mean yoke, Y-O-K-E, like the harness that connects the reins to the horse. And maybe you're like a lot of people who have misheard that word as Y-O-L-K, the mushy yellow center of an N. <laughs> in fact, in Jessamine Stanley's latest book, Yoke, Y-O-K-E, she starts with an anecdote of waking up in the middle of the night, looking at her phone, seeing an email from somebody who had caught an early version of her manuscript where she had a typo and she spelled it Y-O-L-K, realizing uh. this horror. that, And then it just brings up this whole imposter syndrome thing for her. It's a really mm. nice anecdote. But the thing is, it's not actually the worst way to interpret the word. Mm. <laughs> because when we are Y-O-K, yoking our minds to our bodies, or both of those things to breath and spirit, we're actually kind of going into this rich, deep center of our beings, this Y-O-L-K, yoki center. Mm. And while the Y-O-K-E recognizes two distinct and often perceived opposite entities coming together, and the Y-O-L-K is the richness of what's found in the center. So we thought we'd spend the next few episodes exploring some of the common opposites that show up in yoga spaces and conversations and trace the path from those opposites to a more kind of workable or significant or even meaty center. Mm, I love this. You know, um, I have this thing about yin and yang. <laughs> <laughs> being mm -hmm. a yin teacher. Mm -hmm. And I love thinking about um, the ways in which opposites, when you go far enough away from one another, they sort of turn back towards one another. Mm -hmm. And so I really like how opposites tend to interplay. And in this case of the opposites that we see in Taoism, you know, light and dark and warm and cold, they co-create one another. And so I think it's really helpful to explore if we're going to look at one concept to also look at its opposites to bring about more understanding around what we're really thinking about and then also the friction between the two can be really juicy yeah you know yeah uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation <laughs> yeah and it's interesting too i think politically we have seen the back ends of the uh, right of the of the far far right and the far far left uh, thanks to the pandemic as i've been calling it the you know what <laughs> we have seen that overlap on on a very dark back side of yeah. ideologies so for today's episode we're going to look at the concepts of purusha and prakriti these are sanskrit words and it's a framework for understanding our existence in the universe. The terms come from the Yoga Sutras and they can roughly be translated to mean the one who sees and that which is being seen. And by seen, we're talking about not just seen with the eye, not just the tangible stuff, but everything we can know and name. 
So it's every material aspect of the world. And on top of that, we're including all aspects of being a human being. So emotions, phenomena, dreams, memories, and relationships. And on the other side, Purusha is this pure, unbounded consciousness that transcends all time and space and individuality. We have language to name it, but more than anything that can be touched or experienced by the senses, Purusha is beyond anything that can be named. The tricky twist in the Yoga Sutra plot hangs on the places where suffering is born. So on one hand, we're told that yoga is to yoke, Y-O-K-E, our individual selves to a universal divine self with a capital S. But here we're also told that suffering arises when we mistake one for the other, when we mistake and merge Prakriti with Purusha. And that freedom can only come when we strip away all the transient, world-bound sentience from our spiritual essence. And that here is the place where true, liberated self can be found. And this is really the play between the decidedly dualistic approach of the scholastic period when the Yoga Sutras were compiled and the previous, by several hundred years at least, uh, non-dualistic approach of the tantrics and the Buddhists. And there's a lot of debate about why the Yoga Sutras were later like picked off a dusty shelf and, and uh, presumably by the British and handed to their colonized people and said, here, this is your yoga because it's, uh, it's non-threatening and it doesn't make you strong. And uh, capable of, of taking your own land back over. That's a whole other episode and a whole other conversation. <laughs> Nevertheless, there is we are left now with this interplay between between which, if not both of these aspects of existence, are we to focus on? And, and where can the divine be found? And I know, Jen, that, that that in Buddhism, the concept of the divine as a separate thing doesn't really come up. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I'm thinking the best correlation would be the teachings on uh, form and formlessness, sometimes called emptiness. Mm-hmm. Whew, this is a, a really challenging aspect of Buddhism to unpack. and And I think it's not really any less challenging than Purusha and Prakriti in so much as it does, it does require us to really think abstractly about something that at the same time we see in front of our eyes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's, and cause they're talking about objects that we can see things that seem to have form that are actually formless that actually aren't substantial in the way that we think about them and that we can even translate that to ourselves. And so the emptiness comes in is when you start to realize that that which you believe has form is actually formless, you also see that it's empty. Mm. And so this kind of sounds 
bleak, right? It's like, well, (laughs) and I think this is why some people think that Buddhism is quite drab, that on top of seemingly obsessed with suffering, but. um, (laughs) And (laughs) non-attachment. Right, right. Just to name a few. (laughs) But but actually, it's quite liberatory, and this is this is why. And it in the teachings on this appear in what's called the Heart Sutra, which is also the Sutra on Compassion. And so you've got this this like don't don't cling to this that which you think is form because it's actually formless. And and I love always how Thich Nhat Han would describe it because we we have this idea, particularly ourselves, that that we're very solid and we overly identify with the suchness of our, of our body, of our oh. opinions, of yeah. our academic achievements, every, you know, our life work, that, that we, we identify that as I. And in fact, when we really look at the ephemeral nature of our thoughts, the ephemeral nature of our mind, and the, the elements that make up our physical form, are not even really ours in so much as we have no control over any of it. Not even not ours, but not solid at all. Right, right. I mean, then you get into quantum physics and there's more space than matter, right? But, but you know, and I love the analogy he always uses is, is finding the cloud in your teeth. Mm. And so, you know, recognizing that, you know, the clouds in the sky rain the water down onto the earth and it's the water that nourishes the plants that become tea leaves and it nourishes the different humans that cultivate the tea leaves. And then, of course, we're steeping our tea leaves in the water that has rained down onto the earth and gathered in our wells and and so forth. And so he just, you know, he, he suggests to us that in fact, you know, all these independent elements are in all of us and therefore there is no I. And and so that which we think of as solid is actually empty, but in that emptiness, we discover that there's actually quite a lot of fullness. And that's Mm -hmm. when we start to um, relate to the interconnectedness of all things. And so what we in fact see is that there's no such thing as I or you, Annie, but rather we are together because we're yeah. made up of interchangeable elements. When you kind of keep following the thread, it's actually quite beautiful. I remember reading in a a, a lay person's guide to science, which will up the name of the of the book in the show notes. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it was really illuminating in terms of how empty our forms really are. And this was not even written from a Buddhist perspective, but but pure science. And the author used an example of one oxygen atom, which, you know, we have billions and billions and billions of them in our bodies because we're mostly water. And he said to get a sense of how spacious a simple atom is, if you can imagine one atom, the nucleus of it being the size of a raspberry, if you blew up the whole atom proportionately, the distance between that raspberry and the circulating electrons around the edge of the atom 
would be the distance of something like two football fields. What? <laughs> and that's what we are. We're just this, these yards and yards and yards of space. Hmm. Yeah. So we certainly do put a sort of inversely proportionate weight of attention and care and worry on this stuff that is so fleeting, so, so nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so in that regard, in terms of putting so much attention on the stuff that's just not, not made of much of anything that matters or that lasts, how do you think these understandings play out in yoga posture practice? It's like, so if you come back to this idea of Purusha and Prakriti, Prakriti is what we have. It's it's the gift of nature. And so we have to work with these tools that we've been given. But if yoga is intended to be this transcendent thing, this experience that frees us of the burden of form, then what are we all fussing about so much? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess, are we really talking about transcending form? Mm. You know, and I guess we could think more about what do we mean by transcension? What does that, does that really mean? Because when I think about Patanjali talking about calming the fluctuations of the mind, I don't interpret that as transcending, but rather really learning to be with. And so I guess one way to think about it is, well, as, as insubstantial as this form body is, it is nevertheless still here. <laughs> and it's what we've got. It's what we've got. And we need to take care of it. And, and I think hopefully people understand by now that our body isn't just a container that carries around our mind, that, that developmentally the mind is what it is because we have a body. Yeah. And, and yeah. so this idea that we could somehow just loftily live in our heads and, and ignore the body doesn't even play out in science. But even the Buddha figured that out, right? Because he tried all those yogic austerity practices and the yeah. eat one grain of rice a day and nearly died. And was quite <laughs> sick, <laughs> yeah. you know. And and then he was like, "Well, I am definitely still suffering, so I have transcended nothing by depriving my body of care." And and so he sat under the Bodhi tree after eating a bit, <laughs> and mm -hmm. said, "I'm going to figure something else out." And that's when he came up with the middle path. That you know, certainly we still suffer if we have everything handed to us on a silver platter, which was his pre-mendicant life, right? Yeah. But then he also determined that his buddies that that detested the body were barking up the wrong tree as well. And so he landed <laughs> at this point where it's, you know, precisely at the intersection between those two where we find peacefulness. And then I come back to Patanjali, isn't isn't that what we're really doing when we're calming the fluctuations of the mind? When I read that part, you know, I'm thinking about those EKG things with the lines going up and down and instead of having a less volatile um, yeah. readout. So, This is why it 
can be problematic to cherry pick pieces of the yoga sutras out and say, this is what yoga is in the same way that, you know, for people in the Judeo-Christian traditions to pick out lines of the Bible and say, well, this is where it says that X is wrong, (laughs) you know, Mm, mm. Um, because it does say in the sutras that, that the cause of our suffering is the merging of Prakriti and Purusha. And I just don't think that that is a practical way of looking at things for all of the reasons you just said. We, we have to be in this body and we have to take care of it. You know, however, also on the other hand, <laughs> I do think that this concept of, of the material world and the things that we can see and the more divine or uh, eternal sense of consciousness is a useful paradigm for analyzing our day-to-day experience because who can't use a reminder that there's more to us than what we can see or what we can name or what we can buy or sell? You know, there's this quote um, that comes from a couple, I've seen it in a couple of different scholarships and, and, um, analyses of this philosophy. And and it goes something like this, without Prakriti, Purusha is lame. And without Purusha, Prakriti is blind. So one sees and one does. And in the end, we, I think, are most fully expressed when we can acknowledge the presence and the power and maybe the glory of both and all. The concept around form and energy or or the kind of field of potentiality mm-hmm. even that's like the Tao, the Tao also being that which can't really adequately be described or named, but that it's it's this kind of all-pervading essence in the universe and that there is deep benefit to us spiritually to connect in with that and touch in with that. And I think it's it's a kind of secret special sauce of life. <laughs> yeah. To not just see ourselves as as growing for a while and then decomposing minerals. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> right. that's and, quite bleak. And yeah. then then you get into this despairing, so what, what's the point, um, nihilistic view, which doesn't feel worth it either. No. Yeah. And and it's interesting too to me because I think there's an ironic result of being able to take the conscious mind and elevate it above this transient physical experience. And that is that when at least speaking for myself, when I do that, I end up feeling better in my body. I'm less contracted. Mm. I'm less um, defended. I'm more open and expansive, and then I and then I feel capable of of dealing with the stuff of life. So much of which is hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then the other side of this too, then is coming back to you know we we preference asana so much in the typical Western yoga class setting, right? Yeah. What disservice is being propagated by not including 
all the other stuff that's mm-hmm. actually in mm-hmm. in Patanjali yeah. <laughs> that, that tells us how to do this. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. I think um, a, a big disservice, a grave disservice. Well, speaking of elevating our consciousness to things that are are less materially oriented, let's talk about what's inspiring us right now in nature, and um, and we know that that nature is incredibly transient and hmm. constantly in flux, um, but it also evokes these mm, feelings or these these this tonal quality in the body of awe and and spirit and wonder because how did this particular flower get so beautiful just by virtue of being and that's what inspires me in the springtime if i can move past my icky feeling of of allergies <laughs> and and gaze in awe and wonder at the at the simple blooms in in my backyard and in walks around the neighborhood it's it can be really incredibly elevating and and healing so that's what's inspiring me how about you oh well um as you know we did a major undertaking in our backyard this winter uh, Mm. to renovate some structures that were falling apart. We knew when we bought this house six six and a half years ago that it was something that would need a lot of work and just took us a while to get there. And our vision, because we live in a wooded neighborhood with lots of tall trees, that... um, we wanted to bring that nature into our living space more. Mm. And so we we had this vision to build this deck. And so the deck is there now. And yeah. of course, it's not at the time that we're recording this, it's still not warm here, <laughs> even <laughs> though it should be. But I did, I did get to go out there yesterday and um, one night earlier in the week and um, you know, the exchange of oxygen with the trees around. And I just feel differently when I'm outside among that forest. And so it just makes me so happy and contented and not like Christmas day, like I'm getting all the presents I asked for kind of happiness, but just a real outpouring of heart centered feelings um just sitting out there and so that's what's inspired me now is to just go in every moment i can sit out there <laughs> and and breathe that fresh air well there's a lot of science now confirming that that's a real thing that there mm. are actual health benefits to to this sort of communing with nature so yeah you're not making it up Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> and but, it is this merging of majesty with material yeah yeah you know the the interconnectedness and the interdependence that we have on the plant life in our environment in the same way that our minds depend on our body 
our bodies depend on the natural environment that we've adapted to. And it's crazy to me to think that we would destroy it. So hopefully we get our heads on straight at some point. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if more people sat on my deck, they would <laughs> have those moments. Everybody come sit on my deck. I promise it's magical. <laughs> I'll be right over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's time to wind down. This seemed to go really quickly, eh? Um, I'm just, we're, this is the part when we talk about how people can work with us. And I'm, Speaking of nature, I tend to lay a little low in the summer in favor of of having more opportunities to get out in nature. We go camping a lot. So I really, heading into the next few months, am just offering my Monday night yin class, which is virtual. So anybody's welcome to join. And you can find that on my website at www.sati.yoga. How about you, Annie? Do you have anything coming up? I am really enjoying my Wednesday night meditation and Dharma talks. And there are people with me in the studio as I'm sharing, but we're also live streaming it on YouTube and the recordings stay up on the Sun and Moon Yoga Studios YouTube channel. So that's one, one place. And then in terms of finding asana classes that do incorporate the the spiritual aspects of this tradition. I'm really proud that that all of our teachers at Sun and Moon Yoga do this. And so you can visit sunandmoonstudio.com and we've got lots of classes on Zoom as well as in in person for anyone in the Northern Virginia area or the DC Maryland area. Well, thank you for listening, and we love to hear from you. Send us your feedback anytime with an email at feedback at skillfulmeanspodcast.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash skillfulmeanspodcast. And we sure do appreciate your stars and your reviews and smash that subscribe button if you like the show and to tell a friend to help spread the word if you find the programming that we offer enriching and until next time may we take refuge in the practices that help us move with ease connect with grace and be of service